With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Tuesday, January 18th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. I was just kind of in the the intro music. If you're watching us on YouTube, I was kind of air guitaring and I was thinking about the music, even though I arranged the music, the, the loops to make the intro song. I'm not actually sure which instrument I should be air playing during the intro. <laughs> the I went guitar. with a guitar. Yeah, and no, I went with the guitar, but I, yeah. I mean, there's other options in there. There's some some little, little bits of funk in there if you listen real carefully. So I, you, you've got your choices. Like you can hammer away on some kind of electric keyboard if you want to airplay a keyboard. Really, uh, you know, let us know which instrument you like to airplay when you hear the intro to our podcast. I also feel like it 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 speeds up. Like it starts fast and then it, then it catches itself. That is a video-only specialty. So if you watch uh, us on YouTube, you understand that <laughs> phenomenon completely. Yeah, it like plays in double time for a split second or even a full second or two, and then it goes to its regular speed. I don't know why it does that. If you listen only as a podcast, you're like, what the hell are these guys talking about? Why are they drinking on a Tuesday? You know, it's early. What, what's going on? <laughs> well, apparently it has something in, in, in common with my heart. Uh, cause, uh, I fainted this weekend, ended up in the emergency room was, uh, was not exciting. Uh, I've had some near faints in the past. I've, I've fainted maybe twice in my life and I run a really low blood pressure regularly. I'm kind of like a 90 or 60 guy. And, uh, I guess I just crashed. I, I got up and I passed out and then there was a doctor, you know, at the restaurant we were at. And then I was at the friggin' you know hospital and then they were like well it's kind of like it was kind of like when when you bring the car in and it's not making the noise anymore like we got to the hospital and they're like well your heart your blood pressure is fine now (laughs) i'm like yeah i feel totally cool now after i've ruined my friend's evening my friend was like oh my god i'm sorry i called the, the ambulance and i'm like you know no you did the right thing but sometimes you just have to make that call and you know it, you hope it was just precautionary and in this case it sounds like it was glad you're feeling a lot better and uh just yeah something that, I have to be aware of i guess as you get older like things you know those near fainting turned into turn into full fainting so i gotta yeah probably means more tests and heart stuff and we'll see but I, I you know i'll take it i guess over the other side the other side is rougher high blood pressure you know you got to change your diet and you know it's a little bit more intense Oh, I have, I'm avoiding going to the doctor for that reason. I expect the next time I go to the doctor, it's going to be, hey, you really need to start laying off on, uh, you know, cheese, uh, meat, uh-huh. all these things you enjoy. Because I've always run with the high blood pressure. I have mm. been a a high stress human probably from the time I was about <laughs> seven years old. I don't know why. <laughs> That's why we're such a good match. Together, we have one normal heart. Yeah, like, yes, combined, I think we have a heart that could last a very long time uh, apart. Eh, we need a little help along the way, but as long as we do what we're supposed to do, we'll we'll be okay. But, uh, yeah, lots uh, lots to talk about on this episode, even though nothing's happening really in baseball. And we, we had a rundown, of course, for last Thursday uh, due to some unforeseen circumstances, no show that day. I'm going to guess that we're going to have extra shows randomly sprinkled in as we get closer to the actual start of the season, whenever Especially that is. Especially like emergency ones if some sort of agreement is reached. And Yeah, so I, well, I always feel bad when we're down a show or we say we're going to be somewhere and we're not. Uh, you know, look, we'll, we'll make up for it. We'll have some fun uh, again at some point in the future. And I wonder, I don't, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. It's a, a failing of mine. I just, my commute is one minute I go downstairs. Um, and, uh, and I haven't found it super 
like podcasts, like they're talking and they're saying interesting things. Like I have the TV on, but it, you know, most of the time it's not interesting. <laughs> you know? It's really not. It's, it's just blah. It's just like a thing. Like there's somebody here. I'm pretending there's somebody here in my office with me. But a podcast, like I'm like, I would be listening to it and then I wouldn't be doing my work. So uh, I wonder if other fantasy podcasts are just jumping into off-season content in the normal pattern because we honestly here wouldn't we be doing some like positional previews about now like wouldn't we be kind of going team by team at least or something like that yeah we have <laughs> which is why we may have to have some extra podcasts because we're like oh crap season in three weeks let's go <laughs> dealer's choice really as far as uh, how we break it up yeah i think it's usually around the last week of january when we start our positional previews so uh, I will spend some time this week kind of mapping that out with you, and then we'll we'll go from there. I think that's where everybody's at. It's kind of like, hey, let's do the fly arounds, and everyone's if we a, find I out think more also time everyone's later, a little we behind, it. right? Like there's, uh, I, I don't know. It, it, I didn't release any rankings yet, even though I was planning on doing it months ago. I decided not to do it for a while, and there's more players that are that could be traded or could be signed than usual right now. There are, but you could still put stuff out and just update it. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I I get the sense everybody wants to just pretend it's all fine, which I think is a perfectly normal way to go about it. If baseball is your work. I don't know. I, I, I'm starting to have a little bit of optimism about the the real optimism, talks. not the like, well, just because yeah, they, it's going to be fun. They finally got to the table. Right. And uh, they seem to be speaking the same language. You know, there doesn't seem to be any line in the dirt, any line in the sand that's like, you know, we need uh, everyone to be a free agent after five years or we're going on strike. The, like, I haven't, there hasn't seen, there, I haven't seen that sort of language in there. In, in fact, I think it's been, like, it's been okay. Like, they, 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 they are talking past each other. But as you can tell, like, the, the things that they are saying in each of their, uh, their they're not full proposals. These are, they're just discussing. They haven't, no one's made like a full proposal since the union did. But the things that they are sort of proposing to debate on are, are becoming more similar, I think. So uh, I think the big battle will be uh, the uh, the minimum. So we'll see, you know, and I think that the, the, I think that the owners uh, went to 600,000, uh, which is, would actually be one of the smallest increases in a CBA uh, in uh, since free agency began, going to six hundred thousand. That doesn't seem like that's the end point. Uh, yeah. Even if they don't get to a full million, you know, or whatever the target ends up being, seven fifty eight. You know, with with room to maybe escalate it more quickly throughout the course of the CBA too. I could I could see that maybe being part of the. That's my sort of offhand pred- prediction right now. Is like seven fifty or eight. I'm gonna go with eight because I think that's a, a bigger deal and they, that's where they should put all their energy. Eight hundred thousand minimum, uh, no more qualifying offer, um, uh, you know, and the CBT goes up to like two twenty five. The and baseball's already said CBT to like two eighteen. Well, that's BS. <laughs> the CBT should go up four million dollars after revenue after overall revenue in the sport has like nearly doubled. <laughs> like, yeah, no. Yeah, still some work to be done, but uh, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe some reasons to be uh, optimistic, uh, as we have been doing for the last few episodes, keeping a close eye on that mailbag, getting a sense for what people are interested in before we get to our usual you know, draft prep sorts of, of questions. And I thought this email from Eric was really interesting. Uh, he's been running a, a longstanding league, and after the 2021 season, a few teams elected not to return for 2022. Their claim was that the injuries became too random and too frequent, and they made the overall competition too reliant on luck. They basically were saying fantasy baseball is no longer fun because of the injuries, which 2021 was a bad injury year, especially early on. Lots of key players. You mentioned in the email, right? You have Trout, Tatis, Acuna, DeGrom, Bieber, Rendon, Adalberto Mondesi, Eloy, Jack Flaherty. Those are a lot of very early picks that missed considerable amounts of time. So the question is, aside from you know IL manipulation, is there any data that suggests the injuries have become less predictable and more frequent? And if so, how can the fantasy community manage this? Well, I mean, obviously COVID is a, is a factor here 
And uh, as a, a person who plays fantasy basketball right now, I'll tell you that it has become frustrating in that sport. And in fact, way more frustrating uh, than I think it ever was in baseball. In baseball, it seemed to be uh, sort of one or two teams at a time um, and over fairly quickly. Basketball, uh, it seems like every team has somebody uh, that's out right now. In our basketball league, we created a thing called IL Plus, or at least Yahoo did to, to deal with this. IL Plus is um, a, an, an IL spot um, that has fewer rules associated with it. As long as someone is out for the game, you can, you can start, you know, stash someone there. So I've seen that, right, in our fantasy leagues. There's been, if you had a limited IL fantasy league, they probably added IL spots in the last couple of years. They should have. Yeah, and that's been something that historically I didn't like to have in leagues. I always felt like you you should have to make some difficult decisions with your bench spots. But um, because of COVID especially and the way the COVID IL has worked, the added number of absences, uh, the shorter term IL with the 10-day IL, that switched a couple of years ago too, I've softened on that quite a bit. It's it's funny, like the things that you think you're just locked in on at one point in time, you get a few years down the road and you're like, actually... I shouldn't have dug in quite so much on that. That that probably wasn't. I said I would never it. live in Palo Alto. Never. <laughs> I graduated school and I said I'm never coming back. Oh man! And now now ooh, I can you, see school. I'm looking at school right now. You can, you can see you can throw a rock out your window <laughs> and hit school on but, a good day. So there's something else going on though because we've done some reporting. I've done some writing about um, you know arm injuries going up after the shortened 2020. Um, so, uh, I think that was a thing where, you know, the whole process of, of, you know, being a starting pitcher is to, you know, create the ability to, uh, pitch that long for over the course of the season, pitch that long into a game and then pitch that long over the course of the season. Um, you, you, you treat the whole year as a process of getting ready to, for, you know, six to seven months, you know, do this, um, and uh, so with 2020 in there, obviously, uh, starting pitching uh, took a step back. Uh, I would say, uh, hopefully, that next season would be um, better in that way for starting pitching. Uh, because now that it's a much more normal offseason, you know, they've had a, a normal season and now a normal offseason. Hopefully, uh, we start on time or near on time so that they're prepared for, you know, the, the type of season they're going to get. <laughs> So already we're saying maybe because, you know, we don't know when the season will start. And that does uh, also highlight the fact that players are locked out of team facilities right now. Yeah. So, you know, I would say that someone who is rehabbing right now uh, is is a little bit like someone rehabbing during COVID where they're not rehabbing under optimal conditions. However, uh, the MLB Players Association made a deal with... Uh, I forget the name. Some sort of facility, uh, and apparently there's a ton of them. Bat, I bat, something like that. Anyway, there's some sort of facility. Uh, Britt was tweeting about it that uh, now any player can go into free of charge uh, as a member of the union, and they've got basically a year on that. However, that's not the exact same as like being able to be in touch with your doctors, uh, your, your trainers, everybody at at at, uh, uh, at the organization. So you have to really lean on your agents, your local facilities. And so we may see some some injury from there. But not to be long-winded, but the last thing that is actually maybe the source, and I didn't, I was reading, I was listening to your names. I'm not sure that uh, there's a couple of them that were this. The biggest increase year over year in injuries last year was hamstring pulls. There were more strained hamstrings, almost twice as many last year as in the past. Um, and so uh, Rob Maines and Derek Rhodes did a great piece on that in Baseball Prospectus. Um, and again, I think it's it's very tempting to be like, well, you know, they had like that weird 2020 season. So 2021, they just weren't ready for the full season. Hamstring, train, uh, hamstring strains, you know, it's not going to happen in the future. However, nestled within that piece was some analysis that this is a long-term uh, issue and so the question I put to you is: Do you think that there's a possibility that players are training, um, you know, and not incorrectly, but they're training with different goals in mind? For for example, bat speed and exit velocity, um, and less with uh, sort of general athleticism and uh, base running speed. 
in mind. Uh, and if that, this could be a consequence of that. Was the increase in hamstring injuries, was it year over year for a few years or did it just spike up to this new level? More of a spike, but there yeah. was some research that was saying that it was trending up uh, across the sport in terms of like uh, in college and, uh, you know, among kids. Okay. So I guess I think about it a few different ways. Like I, I think of a hamstring injury is the kind of injury that you suffer either because you weren't like stretched out, loosened up enough and you sprinted, which it's a stop start game. We talk about that all the time. Mm -hmm. Even defensively, you're going from a dead stop to a rapid start. When you're running the bases, you you're gaining speed really quickly and you get hurt decelerating a lot. So part of it is just the nature of the game. And then the question is, if you're not training properly, how is the way you're training, making it worse? You know, is it, strength imbalances are you too strong in some areas and not strong enough in others which i think kind of drives at the 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 suggestion you had that people are are optimizing for barrels they're optimizing for for right. power Things rather get than paid for rather than speed because speed is less important now than it was in the past clearly just based on the way teams try to steal bases although you still want fast players you still get a guy first to third first to home those things happen but if teams you're fast. kind of be like we need one fast player Right. Yeah, so like Terrence Gore has like six rings. <laughs> yeah. So you, you have changed what teams are, are trying to do and what players are trying to do as a result. I I could look at that and, and say, yeah, okay, I kind of believe that. The the increase that we saw, even if it doesn't stay at the 2021 level, because that was unique to players having that weird run up to 2021, we're gonna have more hamstring injuries, more soft tissue injuries in general. Hamstrings, quads, could be. calves, all that stuff could stay up, relatively speaking. And that wouldn't surprise me all that much. But I also wonder how much you look back at what happened this year if you're a player and say, Hey, you know, I I don't wanna miss forty games. I don't wanna miss six weeks with a bad hamstring injury and I'm gonna do something different. So I wonder if there's a, a counteraction that we see. Maybe it doesn't come in twenty twenty two for the lockout reasons. I mean, like, again, the training at a different facility is not the same as rehabbing an injury. Like, I, I, I there's, there's so many ways to take this, but I think where I'm at right now is I have less injury optimism than I normally do with players coming off of major injuries for the reasons that you described. Mm -hmm. I feel like the soft tissue stuff can fluctuate a lot and I want to see more. So I'm not ready to draw a strong conclusion there, but I'm worried about Acuna. I'm worried about Mike Soroka. I'm worried about anybody coming off of a major injury that requires a lot of extra attention from team doctors and, and athletic trainers. And I realize that there are probably some other workarounds in play that we don't know about. Every situation's different. I just, I think that's one area where I'm going to be a little more careful in 2022. The question though Yes, there are more uh, there are more IL stints now than ever, right? Like that's that is borne out in the numbers. So this is a bigger problem. If you haven't changed your structure for your league to have either more bench spots, more IL spots, or some combination of both, you need to do that. So it used to be nineteen hitters, nine pitchers, seven bench spots, and maybe two or three IL spots in leagues that had them, and that was enough. I think you want to expand benches by at least one spot and expand IL spots by at least two. And I think that would be closer to ideal. You're the commission in most cases. Like, are you or someone you know is the commission? I realize for bigger contests, you don't have that say. So you have to just accept it for what it is. And those leagues have already started up. So we're not getting changes in overall contests for this year because it's too late to change it now. But I do think we need to be aware of this. But I think the other tactical change you have to think about if there's a way to work around it, and I realize only certain sites can handle this, I think increasing the number of lineup changes you're allowed to make is huge. I know mm -hmm. some people out there still play in daily moves leagues. I don't love that format, but it's another place where I've, I've moved a little bit because for all this frustration, for all these absences that pop up midweek, for any number of reasons, it is a lot less frustrating to be able to go ahead and make a correction on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday than it is to have to wait until at least Friday and the twice weekly changes. If you're in a once a week lineup change, you got to fix that. Well, we've seen like, isn't the NFBC Friday thing almost like a new thing for them? They used to be fully weekly, right? Uh, they've been Fridays for 
a while for, for oh. hitters. Only only for hitters though. And I, I just think But there's nothing more frustrating than uh the you know, the hitter goes down with an injury with the or like you have a Tuesday game, like your team starts on Tuesday that week and you don't find out till Tuesday that the guy's hurt because they don't give you any injury update on Monday because they have a day off. Yeah. I mean you always have to err more on the side of what you know on Monday. Like if you have a healthy option on Monday who plays the same number of games, even if it's a lesser player than the guy, you got a Monday to Wednesday guy and a Tuesday to Thursday guy, mm-hmm. and the Monday guy's healthy and the Tuesday guy's not, you probably have to err on the side of just playing the Monday guy, not even knowing the identities of the players just because of uncertainty. So generally, like I think to answer this guy's question, <laughs> this email's question, um, I would say that, yes, uh, there are more injuries and that by itself means more chaos and that means more, you know, unpredictability. Um, However, I would say that's always been a a part of the game. Um, It's always been a a source of chaos and unpredictability. I think it's a major uh, point of, you know, why uh, we can't project uh, players better, you know, either nagging injuries that... Uh, that affect their performance on the field or just you know keep them from playing at all or or affect them long term and how good they can be because of their because they've been injured somehow um so i would say it's part of the game uh if you can convince them to come back with some of those mitigation strategies in terms of we'll change this we'll have more il spots we'll have more bench spots then then that's worth doing uh but um if they think that it's completely uh, up to luck now just because there are slightly more injuries um i would say that they're probably overreacting to uh, a few injuries they had in our squad last year and they they got mad that they should have won quote unquote and uh you're not going to do much to convince somebody of that i think you know the two people that uh will leave your league uh, th- that you were not going to convince to come back are the ones that felt they should have won and something about the rules or the you know the game uh, kept them from winning or the one that thinks they can't ever win because uh, in that dynasty league they've amassed uh, somebody has amassed too much talent at the top. Those those two are very convinced, uh, very hard to convince to come back. Yeah, dynasty leagues hit a point. Uh, I think it's always like four or five years in where you you have the teams that can win and the teams that can't and. If those groups are, if it's like four teams can win and most of the other teams can't, that league's toast. Like that, that league's not coming back from that at a certain point. So it, it, it takes a lot of balance to pull that off. But I think, and rules, I, I think that it's tricky. I think dynasty, the rules are important. The rules of the game are super important to keep everybody invested and interested and to make sure there's uh, movement and player movement and stuff like that. So midweek replacements whether that's even just a twice-weekly switch or even go into daily moves. That helps you avoid some of that lost time. You have to find what's right for the league, put it to vote, but at least offer those as alternatives to the weekly lineups that are out there. Uh, I would say redemption for players that do get hurt. We have that in in tout wards mm, and labor. You lose a player. I know not every league uses, uses fab, but you could also have redemption in the form of moving up in waiver priority or, or something along those lines. So you lose a key like player. You lose, a, you lose a, a, a top three round pick. You immediately go to the top of the waiver. If you use them for the year, you go to the top of the waiver. Right. You go to the waiver, I mean, top of the waiver order. Even so, if you it's don't something. have fab. Yeah. So you can work on some wrinkles like that. The other thing is more extreme, also requires a little more legwork by the commissioner. But hey, we're, we're about solutions here. So if injuries, if devastating injuries are a, a big part of why people are leaving your league, I think you could actually have some kind of built-in protection where you say, we're going to split the season into two or maybe even three parts. And that's something Jake Seeley's done for a long time. Hmm. And after every either 50-game stretch or after each half, we're going to redraft. Maybe you could protect a handful hmm. of players. You could set it up however you want. Or or even have rewards for each separate first half, second half, like a first half cup where like you know you get you get ten percent, you get like double your feedback or something, you know. Then yeah, then if you got your injury at a different time, like you you didn't win, but you got your money back because you had a good team in the first half. So think about some things like that that your league might be into because I I think the way the founding fathers of fantasy baseball put the game together, it's great. But we don't have to stick to that. We're 40 years past that now. So mm-hmm. let's adapt a little bit and, and make a game that everybody still wants to play. Like I, I might like old Roto, but 
not everyone's going to play that way. So mm-hmm. it's okay. I to like be this idea of redrafting. It's funny though because you there's there are definitely two skills in fantasy baseball that are separate. There's drafting a good team, and then there's there's roster management. You know, and mm-hmm. I think I've in my you know looking at me, I think the the thing that I have to learn every time I learn a new game or learn a new platform is roster management. I think I've always been a good drafter, and it's been you know that's what's separated me from you know taking that next step. So. Um, you know, you know, by doing that, uh, the one thing you are losing is, uh, that roster management skill <laughs> and you're, you're rewarding drafters, better drafters. If you drafted three, like if you thought about it, if you drafted 10 times a year, you'd be rewarding only drafting. Yeah. But what's funny is I've played in some of the in-season NFBC leagues over the years. Like I've done one at Memorial oh, Day. They always do like the half. Yeah. They have one, they have one in half. the 4th of July, I think was the other one I've done. And it is definitely different flying without the group think, without months of prep, without the full mm. season projections in front of you. It just it leads you People down overvaluing hot starts. Yes, like the the, the players that have over and underperformed up to that point are fascinating because the the recency bias is even thicker than it is when you draft at the end of a full season. Like even yeah, if you do a full season draft in October, who was great in September, you know. <laughs> Right. Like even when you do that exercise just at the end of a full season, there's a lot of recency bias. There's even more when you do in-season redraft. So it's just another way. Like If you're trying to find something different that'll get people interested, have another draft. Reset mm-hmm. it. Keep one, keep three, keep zero, keep five. I don't care how you set it up, but there's a solution in there somewhere. So thanks a lot for the email, Eric. Definitely a frustrating thing that we've all been dealing with here in the last couple of years with injuries uh, piling up. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, we got an email from Adam. Adam was wondering the best way to use BABIP to determine if a player actually had a bad season or was unlucky. Are there other stats to look at to help determine this? I would have thought K percentage, but I looked at Kevin Newman, who had a sub 20% K rate and a bad BABIP, and I wasn't sure how much improvement I could expect to see out of a player of his caliber. Thanks for any help. Love the show, Adam. All right, so BABIP, uh, I think... A few years ago, like 10 years ago or even 15 years ago now, the first time BABIP started showing up places, it was really exciting because it was like, hey, we get to have this, this secret sauce that's going to help us find players who were lucky and unlucky. And then I think we realized once we had more information about the quality of contact that hitters mm-hmm. make and the quality of contact that pitchers allow and all the other factors that can lead to a higher low BABIP, that number in isolation wasn't quite as useful as we would have hoped. But I do think we can start to use it as, or you can continue to use it as more of a flag of, of something that's just off compared to a player's career norms. I think I, when I look at BABIP, if I have it on the dashboard for any reason, I'm just looking to see if it's way up or way down compared to previous years and career levels. And then the question that immediately pops into my mind is, well, why? What, what's going on here? Why did this BABIP go up or down? What causes could there be? Fortunately, we have things like StatCast. And I think with StatCast, you can look at expected batting average. And I think with Kevin Newman, that's probably something that's a little bit more instructive. Like, okay, like what what was he supposed to do? The way he hits the ball, the angles and then the, the velocities at which he hits the ball, what was his batting average supposed to look like? You still have to look at it, I think, more from a, a year-to-year sort of workflow and keep digging. But I think it gives you a better indication of how lucky or unlucky a player might have been, at least compared to Babip as the alternative. So that was the first place my mind went when I saw this question. With Newman, it actually wasn't quite as bad as it appeared if you look at the XBA. It should have been in the 250 range. 255 was his XBA. He hit 226 last year. 
we're still talking about a guy that's probably not useful outside of NL only leagues. And even there, there's some job loss potential. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not a barreler. He he has to run to make like a typical roto profile work. And I would say he in some weird ways, Kevin Newman is a reason why I'm afraid of Nicky Lopez. Like that's the <laughs> that is that is like the the downside profile to me of what could go wrong for Nicky Lopez, who ran a ton, especially in the second half, and probably actually helped some people along to titles in in certain instances. I just see a guy that doesn't hit the ball hard, even though he makes a lot of contact. And when you do that, it just doesn't give you a lot of paths to be useful. Oh, that's uh, that's a great poll. Um, if you look at uh, at Kevin Newman's expected batting average, uh, you know, even given his three hundred, even in his three hundred year, they're basically all around two fifty, two fifty and two sixty, uh, and very steady. And uh, Nuki Lopez, the same thing. He's hit 240, 201, and 300 in his three seasons. Uh, his expected BA, though, has been 215, uh, 238, and 239. So basically, he's been a 230, 240 hitter his whole life. If he's a 230, 240 hitter again, um, then uh, he's probably more like a 320 OBP guy with no power. Um, there's going to be a lot of pressure put on his on his uh, defense. Um, the one thing I will say for Nicky Lopez is, uh, you know, the this the structure around him seems to point that he's going to be that player because they've said they don't trust Adalberto Mondesi as an everyday player. You kind of want your shortstop to be an everyday player. Um, and then in uh, Pittsburgh, they are in the middle of a renaissance. Um, perhaps, or at least they are at a different point in their rebuilding process where they just need to try everybody out. Um, And that doesn't include necessarily someone like Kevin Newman. You know what I mean? Like they need to try out to see if they got somebody better than Kevin Newman. And um, I see on their team, uh, Diego Castillo and Rodolfo, man, they're not even on the Fangraphs ones. That's crazy. Uh, Rodolfo Castro, um, uh, Diego Castillo, and uh, Hojian Park. I got his name wrong. Hoy Park. Those three guys are going to get time this year, just because they need to see if they're any better than Kevin Newman. Yeah. So there's definite playing time downside here. Yeah, playing time downside, as you said. And then the last thing I would say is, yeah, I, I generally, uh, the things, the components of, of BABIP are, uh, if you want to look at some old school stats, like line drive rate uh, is a big deal. Uh, speed uh, is a big deal. And um, uh, line drive rate, uh, speed, and K percentage is it does mean something. It just means you get more more chances, more ducks on the pond. Um, but the last thing, uh, and, and then like up down spray angle matters, uh, because fly ball hitters, um, I was just looking at somebody, ah, Reese Hoskins, Reese Hoskins has a 50% fly ball rate. I think he led the entire league in fly ball rate last year. That's really good for his power, but he's never going to have better than like a 275 Babbitt because he hits so many fly balls and they don't have good Babbitts. The last, but all of that is in XBA. So I agree with you that like XBA is a powerful tool. It has all those things. It has a speed. It, it accounts for how many balls were put in play and it accounts for how hard it was hit and what angles it was hit in. The one thing that's not in XBA that could be meaningful is horizontal spray angle. So if you are a lefty that hits uh, for decent power and lifts the ball well, uh, you still might not have your... Uh, expected batting average may not be right for you because uh, you're going to be hitting into shifts a lot. And if you are a pull hitter, even a pull hitter hits the ball hard, you're going to be hitting into the shift. And so that'll cost you some uh, points of BABIP. So I think I would just basically use XBA uh, compared to last year's BABIP uh, to get a sense of how much possible regression there is there. And the only other thing I would then look at is, I think, pull percentage. Yeah, I think the there's, there's a certain type of player that shows up as a chronic underperformer and a chronic overperformer. If you look at like XBA 
minus actual batting average. You can look at the difference between those two numbers and see, oh, okay, this guy actually uh, was very lucky. If the if you take the, if you take the average and su- subtract the XBA, if the number is positive, that means that player overperformed and got lucky. Air quotes could be more going on, but that's where Nicky Lopez falls. Like if you take if you go to Savant, you can make this leaderboard. It's just the expected statistics leaderboard. Sort by that difference column, and if you drop the minimum balls in play to 50. Nicky Lopez is fourth among all qualified hitters in terms of, we'll call it good luck, the the number of his actual batting average and the, the difference between that and the XBA. It's a pretty big difference. But a bunch of guys on that part of the board are hitters like that. There's a couple other weird things I saw, though, too. There are a ton of giants on that list. I think before I split it down to the lower uh, balls in play number, if it was just qualified hitters, there were five giants inside the top 50. And it was a bunch of different dudes. It was Crawford, Belt, Posey, Wilmer Flores, and Steven Duggar. Those those five guys don't all hit the same way. But I just thought it was interesting that the giants were loaded with a bunch of players there. Uh, Randy Arozarena pops on this leaderboard as a guy whose XBA at 220 was a lot lower than his actual batting average at 274. He was probably the best player in terms of like being an early round draft pick who I saw in here and was really surprised to see here. Uh, Luis Robert was on here, but he was actually 338 and his XBA was 297. That's not like, okay, like fine. That's no big deal. But like a Rosarena, 274 down to 220. That made mm. me think, well, what's going on with Randy? Like, is, is there actually some more risk there? Yeah, but he's right into what I was talking about. He puts the ball all over the field. You know, he's very hard to defend. He has, if you look at his spray chart, he pulls, he pushes, he pushes for power, he pushes on the ground, he pulls on the ground, he pulls for power. Uh, There's no real, and he's a righty. So you cannot perform the same extreme shifts on a righty as you can on a lefty because, frankly, you have to have a guy near first base. That's, you know, it's a geometry problem. (laughs) Um, so So thank you for pointing that out. The other thing I would add to the XPA is handedness and pull percentage. <laughs> but where, you know, where, for example, does uh, does Randy Orozarena rank uh, in terms of pull percentage in the league? Uh, I've got here. So Jose Ramirez was actually pulled more than anybody and is a lefty. Oh, I don't see him on the first page. It's interesting. Hmm. He still could have that balance profile, but look at this: Kevin Newman among the fifteen uh, among the fifteen players that pulled the ball the least last year. Hmm. To me, it's just an absence of power in his case. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not quite the same thing, is it? That's not spraying the ball all over the place. That's just not being able to hit it hard. But Juan Soto there, uh, you know, has an interesting profile where it could be ideal for batting average and BABIP because uh, he has power to all fields. He's one of the lowest pull pull guys. Um, and uh, he does make enough contact. So he's, uh, in some ways, um, the ideal hitter for Babbitt, uh, other than the fact that he's not super, super fast. The other player that popped into my head, too, when we were looking at Randy Arozarena just now is Javier Baez, because I think Baez has an actual batting average last year at 265. The XBA was at 241. He swings and misses a lot, but when he connects, he hits the ball really hard, and he doesn't pull everything if you look at his spray mm-hmm. chart he hits the ball out to center he hits the ball out the opposite way and i think that might be kind of part of the how does javi Baez get away with this well th- that's part of it like he hits the ball to all fields and if you can hit the ball hard and hit the ball to all fields you can afford to do something like strike out 30 plus percent of the time yeah i'm 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 struggling with that giants thing though i would say that yes probably uh they uh, are going to regress. Um, just in terms of pull rate, they were 11th in the big leagues in pull percentage, so it's not like they're like going oppo all the time. Um, I, I can't really explain that one unless they were a very you know very much aggressive mix and match team. So maybe they always had a platoon advantage, and maybe that somehow factored into their Babbitt. I don't think that's a complete fluke or I don't think it's completely random I think there's something there I want to pull on that thread a little bit Tyro Estrada uh, 
favorite player of this podcast, I think, mm-hmm. uh, by the end of last season, also on there if you lower that threshold. So it's something that the Giants seem to be doing uh, consciously or <laughs> through through some adjustments, machinations, through something they were doing. They were finding a way to get a lot more out of those balls at play than they were supposed to. They were sixth in barrel rate, so they hit the ball hard. Yeah. That'll help. But... Yeah, I, I would I would guess that there's be some regression there. So uh, I think I think we answered that question from Adam, but I just immediately thought of XBA when I read that question. So thanks for sending that in. Hopefully that page is helpful. And yeah, in the absence of XBA, you're looking at uh, line drive rates, uh, strikeout rates, uh, stolen base uh, t- totals, looking at ground ball, fly ball, because you don't want to have uh, the Reese Hoskins profile, uh, and you're looking at pull percentages. The other side of that leaderboard too. Before we move on, I just thought that's that's interesting because it's loaded up with uh, the the mashers who you can play further back defensively. Uh, you've talked about I think Garrick Sanchez is a good example of this on the pod. I think late career Albert Pujols has been a player like this where yeah you hit a missile, but guess what the defenders can play you back because you're so slow that they're still going to throw you out anyway. And then those missiles that should be hits are not hits. And I think that that's a sort of a common sort of profile that you'll see if you look at the opposite end of that list for players who, who underperform their XBA. Sometimes it's actually deserved because of something like speed and how the defense can actually play that player. Oh, uh, this thing keeps undoing pitcher and making it pitchers. Like, is Chris Owings, was he an overperformer? I'll be on that momentarily. Owings is a player I never think about. He doesn't even show up on the list when I search for him. Yeah, something's weird is going on here. Did he even get 50 balls in play? Sorry, what was your question? Don't worry about it. Statcast is not working for me right now. Um, My question was the other end of the leaderboard, and it's it's a lot of guys that don't run particularly well, so teams can defend them differently. Oh, yeah, and yeah for sure. The, the hard contact they're making is not being rewarded the way that it should be because there are defenders playing in spots where they can't normally play thanks and I would to assume that player's a fair amount of speed. Of, uh, Gary Sanchez is not that, but I would assume a fair amount of them are big lefties, first baseman types that pull the ball and hit for power. Yeah, you'll see some guys like that sprinkled in too. Uh, it, it's a it's a thing, you know. If a, if, a, if a player can play you in the infield three or four feet back, then they can steal hits from you. What are you doing with Tommy Pham in drafts? He's cheaper than he's been in years. The general vibe around his numbers seems to be that he was unlucky. Like he's one of the surprising uh, XBA way over actual average. You know, he's a righty. I don't think of him as a dead pole guy. I'm going to verify that by kind of looking a little closer at that now. But he has some speed. He has power. Kind of a, a five-ish category guy or four, I guess, if you kick out batting average, who's available what outside the top 200. I mean, is this the point where he's just declining and it's actually not going to be as good as it appears to be? Because on the surface, this looks like a pretty obvious bounce-back target in the middle rounds. I'm buying. Um, the one thing that makes me nervous is he doesn't have a, a landing place yet. And that might tell us a lot about what his playing time situation will look like um, because there is the possibility he gets on the small side of a platoon. But I don't I don't see it. He's projected to be uh, one of the top 10 bounce backs in baseball this year by Steamer. Um, he made it into my bounce back article because he uh, was one of the top 10 underperformers on barrels. Uh, his barrels did uh, poorly, more poorly than ninety percent of the uh, than the the population in baseball last year. Uh, his eye is still like a top ten eye in terms of reach rate, so I still think that you know people will see him as uh, someone who can help on the base pass um, and uh, take a walk and still be around. There's some disagreement about his defense on the corners, but I think that he can still be. Um, he has the athletic skills. Uh, to be a good defender. So I see him as a starter. Um, and uh, I liked him at the contract uh, that Fangraphs has him crowdsourced. And so I think he will be in demand um, as a starter type player uh, when things restart, especially since he's not going to garner a long-term contract. So we're talking about someone who will sign for one or one and 10 or two and 20, I believe. Um, and that's something that a lot of teams need. Uh, and will desire. So uh, I'm buying him. 
I'm buying him. I just I have had uh, two DCs I've done on NFPC, and I have them in both. Uh, I think as maybe an OF four or five, and uh, the projection CM is better than that uh, in the auction calculator. And so uh, to buy your OF three as an OF four or five, I think uh, is a fantasy value. I think in, in real life baseball, he has the skills that people want. He barrels the ball, and he has a really good eye at the plate, and he's he's an athlete. So uh, I know there's peripheral stuff that, um, you know, I, I think might have been overrated. Uh, he's not always the easiest teammate, but um, uh, I think that somebody will find the prices right and give him, a, you know, at least an 80% job out there. And I think it was on this pod where I suggested Oakland. Tommy Pham, Oakland. It all makes mm. sense. He's the kind of guy that goes there, plays a lot, has a good year, and if they hang around in the playoff race, he stays. If they don't, then he's on a contender uh, come August via trade because I think there'd still be some interest. It's a great idea because they do have a, you know, I was looking at their outfield just now uh, for a draft I'm in. And uh, right now the outfield starters are Steven Piscotti, uh, Chad Pinder, and Ramon Laureano. Um, uh, you know, Piscotti uh, has one leg out of the league, maybe. I mean, he's pretty close. He's been hurt. Uh, so that's, that's his projections are okay. Uh, but if the if the injuries are going to keep him from hitting his projections, then um, he just he's not very athletic. Uh, he doesn't uh, have a great eye at the plate, and he doesn't hit for enough power to offset those other things. So, um, and then Chad Pinder, I think, profiles better as a utility player. So they really you could almost see them saying having two uh, missing two opportunities in that outfield. Uh, at least one and a half. So I like that. I like that pick for you. Uh, the the one thing that Fan wasn't doing that he needs to do actually is pull more. Like the one reason he was underperforming on his barrels was his barrels were opposite field barrels, which are inferior to pulled barrels. Um, so once again, pull percentage. Pull percentage is a a, a, a very powerful uh, tool. It's just hard because it's not. It doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. Like for example, we just talked about uh, how Reese Hoskins pull percentage versus you know might hurt him and 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 tommy fams you know needs to pull more um so it's not it's not the easiest tool to use but it's pretty powerful the other name on this list that i will not give up on but i can't draft him right now outside of like the end game of draft and hold because we don't know about his health is nick senzel the knee could be a problem maybe he misses a portion of 2022 it's, it's a great unknown at this point, I think he had an arthroscopic surgery in May. They back in September sent him for another opinion. So yeah, the little so bits awful. that we saw of him were actually pretty encouraging in the underlying numbers. And I'm not talking about the stolen base success rate. He was two for seven as a base dealer, but the plate skills, uh, some of the quality of contact was actually really encouraging. So if it's a huge if, if Nick Senzel can just get healthy. I still think there might be a very good offensive player there. Yeah, it's really hard to know uh, when to take that shot. I would say uh, that, and, and this, this I, I thought of this a little bit when you were talking about the injuries earlier and Mike Soroka. Um, there'll, there'll come a moment in your drafts where people are taking prospects and not like the number one prospect in all baseball, uh, Julio Rodriguez. Yeah, I think he's the one for most people. But we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, taking prospects like um, Ronzi Contreras with the Pirates. Or this, this is where I was in the draft when I was considering Soroka. Ronzi Contreras was going. Grayson Rodriguez, the, the, the excellent starting pitching prospect for the Baltimore Orioles. So prospects were going. I said, well, I'd rather have Mike Soroka because we're talking about you know, players that are not likely to get, these are on off players. They're either going to be worth a lot because they were, they play a lot and they're good uh, or they're going to be worth nothing. You know, very sort of 50, 50 coin flip, you know, good luck, but you're buying ceiling. That's when I would take Senzel. I would take Senzel over, you know, who's a good uh, batting uh, prospect that people would actually buy for this year. Who at that stage, like we're talking, Ooh, it's later than Young. It's later than Torkelson. Maybe is it more like a Riley Green for this there year only? Go. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great one because Riley Green could come up and strike out 40% of the time, uh, struggle a little bit, and have to go back down. You know, And yes, uh, he could put together a really great season, but so could Senzel. 
So in some ways I would, uh, I, and it, it depends a little bit on your roster build and this and that and the rules of your, if it's a keeper league, like I'm not saying take Senzel over Riley Green in a keeper league, but no, uh, no but no. like in a redraft, you know, where you are, you're taking a shot. If you have Riley Green and Senzel both on the board, then maybe you take something, you wait for who comes back to you. And if, if it's Senzel that comes back to you, then that's fine. You're taking a guy who could be good. Yeah, I, I can't emphasize this enough. You don't have to draft Nick Senzel. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can certainly go to option C, uh, and that I, I understand. I, I'm just I'm throwing it out there as the hey, if we get good health news, there's still something good there in the skills that I 100%. think you want to three ten XBA, to. really good strikeout rate, hits the ball to all fields, has speed. Your Soroka call. I mean, I was on him last year thinking. We'd get a, a half season or more of him pitching really well. I think people just forget, first off, how young he is. He debuted as a 20-year-old. He's just 24. He turned 24 back in August. There's almost no way he's ready for opening day. I mean, two Achilles injuries like that. It's a short yeah, list of players that have done that. Second half, but yeah. You know, if I get 50, 60 innings out of him, like I mean, how much is that? you think Grayson Rodriguez is going to put together a 150 inning season this year in the mm. major leagues? There's definitely a question of what I think they're going to do and what I would do being pretty different. Yeah. And I would say think, thinking about like the success of maybe Alec Manoa last year, especially how would you look at Grayson Rodriguez and his dominance at double a and say, yeah, I, I think he needs a, a half season at triple a. I'd be surprised. Like if you want to give him four or five starts there, just make sure that he keeps dominating. Fine. Like I'm not going to argue against that. I mean, He's young. I think it's just a safe play because what you you don't like you don't make a full season off of Grayson Rodriguez. Uh, you like you don't make the playoffs off of a full season of Grayson Rodriguez. I don't think. So what you do is maybe you start the season with Rutschman up there. Maybe you start the season with somebody else up there. You try to build an okay team. You you move the walls so that Means has a good ERA. Blah 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 blah. Uh, and. Oh. Uh, uh, and you you change it up and you and if everything's going well then hey okay you know it's April first and you know we won what fifteen games or we won twelve games like yeah let's see what happens let's let's bring him up now but then the season could go south just as quickly he comes up you know he struggles he goes back down I think this is this is just where I've always probably been a little more aggressive than actual player development people and, and the way teams want to handle things because of service time and whatever other reasons. But I think you want to finish developing pitchers in the big leagues when mm-hmm. you're in a situation as dire as Baltimore's. I think you, you'd rather, you'd rather solve big league problems. If you feel like the pitches are big league quality and the command is mm-hmm. ready, put them in the big leagues. That's, I mean, that's exactly what a farm director told me. He's like, why am I wasting these guys in the minor leagues? I have major league pitch grades on all their pitch on all their pitches. It's time to go. And I think with Grayson Rodriguez, that's what we're talking about here. Maybe we just landed on a name where it's like I, I actually think giving him big league volume this year could happen. That's a short list of pitching prospects. It always is. I mean, because you need opportunity plus talent and and guys on good teams. I mean, even even if you are an Aaron Ashby believer. I just took Mitch Roy. White. The pitching plus loves Mitch White. I took Mitch White, you know, like maybe. Oh, I took Mitch White on the comeback from Mike Soroka. So I just basically took Mitch White and Mike Soroka neck and neck. And even as it stands right now, the situation for Max Meyer in Miami is more crowded than it is in Baltimore for Grayson Rodriguez. There's That's nothing true. on the big league roster that prevents Grayson Rodriguez from being a big league starter. The moment he gets the call to Baltimore, whereas mm. other teams, depending on their situation and depth, whether they're contending for the playoffs, managing innings, whatever it is, they are they all tend to have more complications than what we have with with Rodriguez. Well, fine, I made a bad pick. No, look, it, I just, again, that's why I was, I was just, just trying to put. I was no, I was also just trying to put this in context where I think that the heavily injured players, you have to kind of consider them prospects. They have that same sort of bust rate. Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of a, a zero or one in terms of what you're getting for the most yeah. part. Like not in the big leagues, in the case of Soroka, on the IL, and then back. And I think with Soroka, aside from age, people just forget how good he was. 214 big leagues inning, big league innings with a 286 ERA, a 116 whip. Yeah, the strikeout rate's not amazing. The ratios are great. That's a that's a World Series winning team that he's on. Like there's run support, there's help in the pen protecting his leads. Like Obviously, he knows how to pitch. Like he's 
that that's how you get to the big leagues as a 20 year old in the first place you you have all of those traits good command three pitch arsenal yeah and those pitches could still get better like that's that was the thing that made Soroka so appealing before the injuries I think that's all that's all still in play so all that's a very long-winded way to say yeah um, I'm in on the Soroka um, part of drafting players like that in draft and hold or leagues with IL spots it's not drafting too many because you can't and you can't afford zero too many zeros you can take a yeah. shot with a player or two like that but that's about it it means not drafting them early like you know it means keeping your nose clean uh, you know, long enough that you can you can take some of those shots. Yep, I'm with you there. Uh, so we got one more question here. Uh, maybe we'll squeeze in two because this, this other one's a really easy toss-up sort of question that we can answer pretty quickly. But one more long sort of form question. This one comes from Andrew. He's wondering if we have any opinions on how to spur owners to trade more frequently in long-standing dynasty leagues. His situation, entering year 13, they have 10 teams. They keep 25 to 30 with 40 men in-season rosters. Most teams are balanced and have already gotten their hands on their type of players and prospects. And they're treating their teams as a guide for who to root for in real-life baseball. And it leaves them without many trade fits. The only incentive is during roster cutdowns when everyone wants to consolidate their keepers. Everyone just seems scared to trade away a pre-breakout player. It ignores the possibility they can just as easily come out of a deal on top. We've briefly discussed expanding with two more teams. That's obviously a drastic step. Do you have any outside-the-box ideas for this? Or is this cyclical and something we just have to live with for now? Thanks, Andrew. My first thought here, Eno, is that this league doesn't sound like it's fallen into the trap of a deeper dynasty league where only a handful of teams can win. Based on description, it sounds like a a group of reasonably equally competitive owners and managers that make this a lot more fun to play. So like tip of the cap for doing that 13 years in, and maybe part of the secret is only having the 10 teams because mm. I think those, those deeper leagues, I think of like RDI, that was a 20 team league with a lot of really sharp players in it. You start to fall behind talent wise in a 20 team league, harder to make up ground there in a 10 team league. It's at least possible to start building something that's competitive because also just half half as many teams are vying for the same guys easier to keep 10 managers happy than 20 right yep um yeah i you know i think that uh it is difficult i think one of the most difficult things is to keep a a league vibrant and to keep a league uh trading and to and the one thing that that uh, sticks out for me here is that you have no penalties for keeping and um you know, like in our in Devil's Rejects, we have no penalties for keeping, uh, and that has led to, um, yeah, some roster consolidation. I think we're lucky, in effect, to have uh, some people who uh, have won before wanting to win in different ways themselves. Like you know, I I I, I give Tom Trudeau a lot of crap. Uh, he's actually named his his league Trade Spam, which is. Uh, you know, has something to do with the fact that he like our inboxes are just filled with offers from him, and I've gotten annoyed at him in the past. But um, he he won the league and had uh, you know like Trout and Goldschmidt and like you know had and you know you know peak performance Kluber and all these players, and then he traded Kluber, Goldschmidt, and something else for uh, Acuna as a prospect, and it blew my mind because I was just like, what? Those are all you know. You know, and it it was because he wanted to win another way. He wanted to win, you know, with some prospects he held on to. He identified a new a new core, and that has helped keep the the team the league pretty vibrant. Um, but I generally am pro having some sort of penalty for keeping. I like in Autonew, for example, that the prices go up. I think that tracks with major league team building. And it doesn't make sense um, just intuitively when you're playing a game that somebody could, and this has been really a, really tough in our basketball league, could get together like five of the top stars in the game on one roster and have no reason to trade any of them and just win for five years in a row. Yeah, so. I, I kind of see it more as um, wanting to have a shelf life on the years, even if you don't put prices on players right you're doing snake drafts so there's no salaries yeah, or anything keep a guy for three years keep a guy three, for five, five have, having some kind of expiration date on how long a player can be kept even if it's a flat keep x number of players that might actually increase the activity because then you have some urgency like hey i'm gonna lose this core 
I want to make moves and trade some young players. Like I think that that's probably your best path without adding teams to the league to incentivize people. But then the same thing that we always say with keeper and dynasty rules, you can't necessarily just do that right now. You kind of have to do it with some warning. You kind of have to say, hey, we're going to add this after rule this after this season. Yeah, well, you could put the numbers on everybody now. Start, start, yeah, make this year one and, you know, then in year three, year f- after year five, then this wave of play. That to me would probably be your, your best bet if you don't want to go to the trouble of salaries. In the Pitchfork League is that we tie um, uh, uh, players to the, le- the round they were drafted in. And then we have some sort of inflation of rounds. So, you know, I had Mike Trout for a while. And like when I acquired him, you know, he was like a 16th round pick. Uh, and then he kept uh, he kept get inflating, inflating, inflating. I think I still have him, uh, but now I have to pay like a second round pick uh, to keep him. Um, and uh, just some sort of uh, yeah, what it, whatever it is, if it's a price that goes up or a round uh, penalty that goes up or a number of years you can keep him, that just it just uh, it just uh, offers some urgency, like you're saying, some uh, some constrictions. Uh, to to make uh, make things happen. Hopefully that helps Andrew. Anybody else out there in, in similar situations trying to get activity because trades are fun. Um, I find in leagues with salaries and, and expirations on on contracts, there's a lot more movement because it, it sort of forces some action uh, along the way. Uh, last question here came from Perry. He writes, knowing nothing else about my team, who has a bigger short and long-term fantasy impact between Matthew Boyd and Yandy Diaz? It's a 30-team head-to-head points league, if you're wondering why this is even a debate. I've been staring at this for a few months now. Uh, Maybe we can help Perry no longer stare at the Boyd-Yandy Diaz debate. Is there a clear side for you on that one that you'd rather be on? Uh, You know... I, there's something I, I actually love about Yandy's game where, you know, he doesn't lift the ball well, but he hits the ball really hard. Um, and he has a really good eye at the plate. Um, let me see what his reach rate is here. But he's, yeah, 18% last year. Like he's a he's like a, a top 20 type guy with uh, in terms of eye at the plate. So he does everything I want except for two things. He's right-handed on a team that platoons up the wazoo. He's not that great a glove. Uh, and I see, you know, I think I see Taylor Walls like running away with third base and at very least stealing most of Yandy Diaz's playing time there. So right now he's projected for a decent number in terms uh, of steamer because the depth charts say he'll get 30% of the playing time uh, at third base and 30% of the playing time at first base and some playing time at DH. And that'll give him 560 plate appearances. If I knew he was going to get 560 plate appearances, he would be the guy I would keep. I just, I'm worried that Taylor Walls takes that job outright. Uh, I'm worried that at 30, uh, there's not much projection left for Diaz. Uh, I'm worried that if he becomes a, a full-time first baseman, he he you know he may just bounce around and be kind of a backup first baseman or MLDH type. Um, so it becomes a little bit uh, harder to see the future beyond this year, in which case Boyd might come back around. For next year, I would take uh, Yandy in a second. Yeah, I think because of the Boyd injury for 2022. I'd be on Diaz if you're trying to play the long game. I'd rather just have Boyd. Give me the, give me the pitcher, the guy that should still be a starter, can be a bulk guy, has flashed at least being kind of a mid rotation fantasy guy. I mean, what he was doing before he got hurt was actually some of the best stuff we've seen in his career, just in terms of ratios. Had the ERA under four, had the WHIP at 127. I, I think I'd I'd rather bet on him getting healthy and then getting a spot to give us 150 innings going to like next season and beyond. Yeah. There's, there's a path for getting better. Like Andy's not going to get better with the glove. He's probably not going to lift the ball anymore. Yeah, I would agree. I think Andy's hit the point in his career where he's very likely to be like a 300 plate appearance guy and he'll quietly just fade away. Even though the plate skills are really good and he hits the ball hard, he just mashes it into the ground and doesn't seem like that. If the Rays couldn't fix that by now, 
they're going to get pretty antsy about it because he's arbitration eligible now. So Yeah, right, right. There's that. So someone uh, else has to try and fix him. And I know the UZR numbers aren't great, but just uh, from watching, I just I, I doubt there's a lot of other teams that want to play him at third base. Yeah, I get that sense as well. That is going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. Before we go, <laughs> we helped. That's got to be one of the deepest leagues that have any listener. <laughs> I mean, if it's a really specific question that we get to answer on the pod, it will generally be at the very end. And hopefully just the process of how we think about the problem is helpful to people who don't have that exact problem because I think Perry might literally be the only person on the planet with that exact <laughs> problem. So hopefully we helped Perry, but I hope we helped a few other people with the way we thought about solving the issue uh, in that situation on Twitter. He's at, you know, Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper, the pod at rates and barrels doesn't tweet yet. Could tweet soon. You want to be there when it does, because it could be really what exciting. Will the first tweet be, Oh, it's going to be the, our combined wordle score. Of course, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> what, what else could it be? It's awful. Oh God. It'll be no. an accompanying video of the three, like the three of us will have Brit on and we'll all solve a wordle together and then we'll tweet the results. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> uh, if you still want to subscribe to the athletic 33% off at the athletic.com slash rates and barrels. Um, if you want us to go away, I understand that as well, given that there are enough Wordle tweets out there. I'm guilty of it. I just, I, I did it the first time because I thought it was a cool game. I wanted to share the game with people. Uh, I don't think anyone cares how I'm doing in Wordle. But if you do, you know, just tweet at me and I'll, I'll, I'll direct tweet it back to you. I'll, I'll, I'll just have it ready to go because I like to play. But that's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>